This is Macro Horizons, episode 50. Thanks for the memories. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the final couple weeks of 2019. In lieu of our typical structure, we've decided to use this podcast as an opportunity to recap the things that have happened in the treasury market over the course of the last year and see if we can draw any useful lessons for the year ahead. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, John, if given one answer, what would you say the most important takeaway from 2019 was? So if I think back a year ago, one of my highest conviction calls was that 2019 was going to be the year of the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, that we were going to see twos, tens invert and then inflect higher. That made a lot of sense. You have the Fed executing a series of preemptive rate cuts, and frankly, it just followed in intuitively from the general trend in the cyclical economy at the moment. With hindsight, one of the biggest takeaways for me is the Fed cut rates, but that re-steepening only occurs if one believes that rate hikes are going to manifest down the road. What really stuck out to me about 2019 is the fears of the secular stagnation, Japanification, not just lower for longer, but lower forever argument. And so what we saw is despite a rather dramatic rally in the front end of the curve with the Fed cutting rates, the back end largely just followed it straight down with it. So if one believes that the first best description of where Treasury yield should be is the expected path of Fed policy, it's as if the entire trajectory of Fed policy for the next several decades fell. That, to me, reflects a variety of different things. Call it the new normal, call it a more realistic growth assessment, but it should certainly recast how we're thinking about rate policy and inflation expectations going forward. Well, I also think that it is worth highlighting that over the course of the last couple decades, it's very clear that the treasury market has also become globalized along with broader economic activity. And so this implies that some of the trends that we're seeing in the European government bond market as well as in Japan really do have a knock-on impact for the U.S. That doesn't mean that just because boon yields are negative that treasuries should follow suit. Rather, it suggests that some of the demographic issues that have played out in Japan as well as in Europe do matter for the U.S. And to a large extent, we are experiencing, perhaps to a lesser extent, a lot of the same patterns. That implies a more subdued inflation outlook as well, as you pointed out, John, a more realistic take on expected growth over the next several years. One of my big takeaways from 2019 was similar 
insofar as the market really rebased rate expectations to a much lower plateau. I've noted this in the past, but I think it's really worth reiterating that when the Fed started this cycle, they were anticipating a much higher terminal Fed funds rate than was actually realized. So if you come into a cycle thinking you're going to get to 4% Fed funds, the best you can do is 240. That tells you a lot about what is going to play out over the next two or three cycles. That meshes very well with one of my other big takeaways from 2019, which is that it is super hard to exit unconventional monetary policy. We've seen this kind of play out in a variety of different localities. Between 2018 and 2019, the Fed tried to hike rates, certainly had a lower terminal rate, but it also started running off the balance sheet. The ECB, in a similar mindset, went from QE to on pause to, oh no, I guess we got to restart the purchase program. But more to the point, there's increasing skepticism around negative interest rate policy. The Fed's indicated a pretty substantial skepticism that that's appropriate in the U.S. The ECB is actively taking measures in order to try to mitigate the adverse effects of negative interest rates. And you're even starting to see some countries just drop negative interest rate policy entirely, including the Ricks Bank this past week. So... One of the big takeaways to me is unconventional monetary policy can support financial activities, but it's really, really hard to get out of the fact that the Fed is going to have to inject several hundred billion dollars into the front end to maintain stable funding conditions speaks to just the depth of those difficulties. And as a side critique of the ECB, the way that they implemented the negative rates regime was done in a way that there were enough exclusions that it arguably made the endeavor somewhat toothless. And so in thinking about the tiering system and the fact that a number of significant institutions simply didn't face the realities of negative rates, it's really not that surprising to see pushback on both the political side as well as from central banks on the continent. This generally points to a theme that's becoming increasingly present and we've discussed on and off again over the past year. Monetary policy has arguably done everything it can do. And at this point, not only are they pushing on a string, but it may be ineffectual or have a negative consequence of their activities. It could create kind of a negative feedback loop, either via negative interest rates, distorting financial markets via asset purchases, what have you. So there's a lot more talk about the need for large-scale fiscal policy to fill some of the aggregate demand side. One of the concerns I have as we look into 2020, though, is the political situation in the U.S. makes me very skeptical that we're going to see any type of large-scale infrastructure, tax cut, or just general agreement on anything. One of the things that we've seen in 2019 is increasing levels of political discord in the U.S. The year started with the longest government shutdown on record and ended with the third presidential impeachment in history. That doesn't really set up a 2020 where we should expect much on the fiscal side, at least in the U.S. Europe and Japan may be slightly different stories, however. Further into the not monetary policy front, one of the major stories in my mind in 2019 was, of course, the trade war and the impact that that had on the various multinational firms, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And despite the Fed's endeavors to not become the de facto central bank of the world, what we saw is that trade war jitters, increasing tariffs, the dueling headlines, and the accompanying uncertainty that flowed through to the corporate side ultimately weighed on equities, 
which at the end of 2018 very quickly put the Fed back into play. Call it the Powell put or central banks bailing out stocks, however one wants to phrase it, the fact that monetary policy came to the aid of the corporate sector and risk assets was really a major theme in the year just passed. I also think that it's useful to put in broader context, listen, it was an interesting year in terms of the treasury market. We held a range. We didn't get to record low 10-year yields, but we got very close at 143. The U.S. rates market followed a remarkably similar seasonal pattern to the ways in which rates tend to behave, a bit bearish in the beginning of the year, bullish throughout the summer, and drifting a bit higher to ring in the new year. Well, let's talk about what we didn't see happen as well. We didn't see Treasury supply, frankly, really matter all that much for U.S. rates. Think about it. Trillion dollars of net due issuance, why are 10-year yields at 143? They should be at 443 or trading on an entirely different plateau. We didn't see the domestic growth profile really guide either monetary policy or trading in treasuries, nor did we see realized inflation be addressed by monetary policy in the way that we would have typically anticipated. The best example that I have on this front is when the Fed was cutting 25 basis points a clip for an aggregate of 75 basis points, core CPI was printing above expectations, three-tenths of a percent each month for three months in a row. Yeah, it's been 21 straight months now that core CPI year over year is at 2% or higher. And this highlights another big takeaway on the inflation front and the Fed's ability to control it. And this is something both of you have said several times, is that when it comes to fighting inflation, the Fed does a much better job of combating it from the upside than trying to limit the extent that deflation weighs on some of their favorite series. To rewind the tape a little bit, Ian, you made the argument that issuance doesn't matter. And it's, it's not a tape, just to be clear. It's not 1982. Could be 1984, though. Go ahead, John. Thanks, Ian. So to not rewind the tape a little bit, you've made the argument that issuance doesn't matter for the treasury market, and maybe only 80% agree with you there. I do think that we are in a massive structural deficit leading to large amount of collateral financing needs. And while you might not see it play out in the overall level of rates, it does have an impact on funding conditions and basically treasury OAS spreads. We saw a series of competing factors in September come to play in a rather remarkable development in repo rates. And when I think of repo, I really think of three correlated things. One, you have the amount of reserves in the system. Well, the amount of reserves were declining. And as we mentioned before, the Fed was trying to exit unconventional monetary policy, maybe not perfectly. The second part is the regulatory constraint. Basically, how much can the elasticity of the plumbing of the system expand to absorb different financing needs. And then the third is the amount of collateral needed to be financed. And so that can kind of be broken down into the amount of leveraged in the system or just the amount of issuance. So in that framework, issuance does matter. We've seen an increase in collateral financing on primary dealer balance sheets. We've seen secured rates trade cheap to unsecured rates, which intellectually is kind of backwards. And more concerning is we're kind of structurally here for a very, very long time. 
So on net, does issuance matter? I think the answer is yes and no. It really comes down to what framework you're looking at it for. But the fact that we have such huge amounts of both net and gross issuance will continue to be a major story in funding markets, continue to put upward pressure on Treasury OIS spreads, even if some of the Fed's actions in Q4 reverse that to an extent. I think you make a very good point, John, and I don't want to stand in front of your attempts to put the fund back into funding. Ding, ding, ding. However, at the end of the day, when it comes to estimating where two, 10, and 30-year yields will trade, the conventional logic that more treasury supply translates to higher rates really did meet a material challenge in 2019. That being said, All of your points are super relevant, and what jumps out at me are the contrast between Europe and the ECB and the Fed and the risk that they face if and when we see a significant enough slowdown that triggers another round of actual QE. Unlike the ECB in 2018, when they stopped QE, They simply ran out of bonds to buy. That's not a situation that the Fed will face, at least not anytime soon. As a quick follow-up to that, I think your point on the amount of supply and the clearing level of rates is a very important one, and we have to take it in the context of the macro picture. Just at a high-level first pass, slower economic growth means more borrowing and more issuance, but that also means lower Fed rates. And so especially say twos, fives that respect intermediate term path of Fed policy, if and when we get slower economic growth, more government spending, lower tax receipts, what have you, that means more borrowing needs, but it also means lower rates. So that traditional argument of more issuance must mean higher rates is a partial equilibrium solution at best. And frankly, it's not the primary or even really the secondary driver of interest rates. If we take a step back and we think about how the market has evolved over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, I do think it is relevant to imagine ourselves in the 80s and early 90s when the rate complex was entirely different, when things such as COLA adjustments for organized labor really mattered and flowed through to realized inflation, when monetary policy was not even close to as transparent as it is now. In that environment, we'd be centering this conversation around domestic growth and inflation expectations with perhaps an emphasis on some of the supply concerns. Fast forward to 2019, the conversation had less to do with domestic growth and inflation expectations and far more to do with overseas and global growth and inflation expectations, as well as the ramification for monetary policy by the ECB, by the BOJ, and by the rest of the world, not just what's happening in Washington. And a case in point there is look at what the labor market's done in this past year. The fact that we've seen continued strength in NFP, 50-year lows in the unemployment rate, and still tens reached 143, that's a pretty compelling data point to the fact that what we're seeing going on in the market currently is partially a domestic story, sure, but equally as much an international one. And at the end of the day, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Global trade is denominated in dollars, and the Fed is a central bank which controls the supply of dollars, if you want to think about it that way. So there's a major mismatch between one country's central bank basically setting the terms of trade globally. What that really implies is the feedback loop where 
global growth, global trade activity, global financial conditions matter increasingly more. And in particular, they matter increasingly more for the Fed specifically. So it's a bit of a different constraint than what your favorite other foreign central bank faces. We haven't spent a great deal of time recapping what has happened from a technical perspective in the treasury market. One of the big highlights and something that has been reinforced, at least from my understanding of the way the U.S. rates market trades, is that investors love round numbers. All right, maybe not technically round numbers, but 2% 10-year yields, 25 basis points, twos, tens. It's these increments of repricing that really help anchor expectations for the overall market. And we've seen that play out several times. And so as that applies to the year ahead, the notion that if we get anywhere close to 225 10-year yields, that will be a significant buying opportunity certainly does resonate quite a bit. Another important lesson learned was that when we see periods of extremely low volatility, as we did in the beginning of 2019, that doesn't always or necessarily have to resolve itself in an increase in term premium or a sell-off in the treasury market. And the low volatility story that was so thematic back in February and March, I think it's a nice thing to nod to just because it's such a textbook example of what is the source of the underlying volatility in rates. There's kind of traditionally this correlation between implied volatility in rates as measured by the move index and term premium. So all else equal, one would think, oh, if implied volatility spikes, term premium must spike as well. If, however, the source of the volatility spike is more macro in nature, you could see a rally in duration. So moments of major geopolitical risk or uncertainty tend to correlate to a spike in implied vol and a drop in rates. So looking forward, if and when we see the next volatility spike, it's really going to come down to what is the underlying driver rather than just the fact that vol is going higher. And while not technicals explicitly, another thing that 2019 reinforced is the relevance of the seasonals. Ian, you touched on it earlier, but the tendency of the market to rally in the late summer months with the peak usually falling somewhere in mid-September played out in textbook fashion in 2019. And now this current episode of bearishness as tenure yields have drifted higher in Q4 to right within striking distance of 2% really backs up this idea of animal spirits playing a role in offering sort of the underlying trading momentum, even if the fundamentals ultimately win out over the longer term. But the curve inverted, doesn't that mean we're going to have a recession? Not inverted anymore. Fair point. The shape of the yield curve got a lot of attention in this last year, particularly twos, tens, which dipped below zero. But as we've noted in the past, the Fed has historically been more focused on the three-month bill versus tens, simply because of its predictive quality in terms of the probability of a recession over the course of the next 12 months. What I find to be worth reiterating in that context is if we look at the shape of that curve versus corporate profitability, there tends to be a lag of real economic performance and the shape of the curve. On average, roughly 18 months between the point in which the curve flattens dramatically and we see that translate through to a compression of corporate profits. Why are we worried about a compression of profits? Not only are there implications for the equity market, but also 
once we start to see a profit squeeze that leads to the rationalization of labor forces, layoffs, and that ultimately undermines consumer confidence. And in the U.S., once the consumer loses the will to spend, we almost invariably see a slowdown, if not a full-on recession. So you're saying we're not out of the woods yet? Let's face it, if we could even see the end of the woods, we wouldn't be trading with a one-handle in 10-year yields. Optimistic outlook as we go into 2020? Setting aside all the forest trees, grandma house references that we might have, fact of the matter is that the Fed has put on a very big wager for 2020, and that is an aggregate of 75 basis points in rate cuts will be enough to extend the business cycle long enough that a soft landing is realized, the labor market continues to be relatively robust, and consumption manages to carry on at the current pace or perhaps slightly lower, but not enough to be consistent with a true recession. All right, now that we have recapped the year just passed, thinking forward to 2020, New Year's resolutions. Ben, you're up. Well, if I've learned anything, it's been, you know, once a month, there seems to be this really large seller of 10s and 30s. It comes right around 1 p.m. I need to dig into that. John? Now, I got to be honest, it's say the word repo a lot less than I have for the past three months. And Ian? My New Year's resolution for 2020 is to put the Mac back in macro and never let him catch me riding nerdy. And after that, I'll be the one to offer our condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And a special thank you to the listeners who have been with us the entire year with the ups and the downs of the Macro Horizons podcast. And we truly appreciate both the support and all the questions that listeners have sent in. Thanks again and happy holidays. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. 
It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.